We're going to carry on this, uh, this series today, Scandal of Grace, Matthew chapter 1. And basically, we've been looking the last few weeks at the genealogy of Christ, the people in Jesus' family tree. Uh, the, the picture that was kind of the way we're hanging all of this is the family Jesus came from is a picture of the family he came for. And so we've been looking back into the Old Testament at some of the characters that find themselves in Jesus' family line, looking at their stories and seeing how they point to Jesus. Because everything points to Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. Every question, Jesus. Every story, Jesus. Every verse in the Old Testament, Jesus. Except, well, maybe uh, Exodus 16, verse 36, which says an omer is the tenth, of, tenth part of an ephah, which always confused me how that actually pointed to Jesus until I discovered that an ephah was about three-fifths of a bushel, and then it all made sense. So... <laughs> With the exception of Exodus 16.36, perhaps, everything, it all points to Jesus. And today, where we're at in the genealogy of Christ is we're looking at the kings, the list of the kings that start with David and work their way through to the Babylonian exile. And we'll look through those in a moment. And this kings especially can be somewhat confusing because we have northern kingdom and we have southern kingdom and kings of Judah and kings of Israel. And also, you can often look at them and read and think, how does this point to Jesus? How is this particular story helpful? And it's always good to remember whenever we're reading the Old Testament that all of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3 tells us, is God-breathed, breathed out by God. So it's all useful for training and correcting and rebuking and, and, and teaching us in all righteousness. And it's all here, Paul says in 2 Timothy, it's all here for a reason. And that reason is to point to Jesus, to show us the gospel. And so if you're ever reading the Old Testament and you land anywhere else other than Jesus... You've missed the point. Go back and read it again. But here's the thing. It's one thing knowing that Jesus is the answer. It's another thing knowing how he's the answer and why he's the answer. Just think back to when you were in school for a moment and maths. I hated maths, I'll be honest. And what I hated most about maths is they'd ask you a question, you'd give them the answer, and that was never good enough. You also had to show you're working out. And I was forever, Why? The question is this, this is the answer. Why does it matter how we got there? It's the answer. And they'd say, why it's the answer? I'd say, because it is. Well, because my calculator says so. And then Mr. Thwaites would always say, you won't ever be carrying a calculator around with you. Oh, really, Mr. Thwaites, you got that wrong. I got one in my pocket all the time. It's beside the point. As I've got older... He got a lot of things wrong, Mr. Thwaites. As I got older, you'll never amount to anything, boy. I was like, mm, well, okay, fair enough, fair enough. As I got older, I began to realize and appreciate that actually just the answer, the why and the how is actually really quite important. I've got three kids. Them teaching them to say thank you when someone does something or gives them something, it's not really just good enough that they go thank you because they know that's the answer. I'm really trying to teach their hearts why and how we get to that answer. That's the whole point of parenting. Do you know what? It's, it's pretty similar when we read the Old Testament. You might know that Jesus is the answer, but unless you get how or why or how we get to that, there's a danger of just reducing the Old Testament really to just, a, to be honest with you, a long and in places slightly dull, sometimes a little bit less dull, but a, light, a long introduction to the New Testament. And so, yeah, there are some cool stories that we look at, but I'm going to skip most of this stuff that I don't really understand because I don't really get it and all do I really understand how it points to Jesus. And there's also a big danger if we're doing that of, of falling into the trap and of reading the Old Testament particularly and thinking, okay, what this is doing is telling me how I need to behave. This is telling me what I need to do. 
And we've repeatedly said throughout this, theory, this series that we don't read the Old Testament morally. It's about me and what I've got to do and a set of principles and, and lessons that I can learn and apply. We read it theologically, which means this is about Jesus. Wow. And what he's done for me and in me and through me. And now this is how I live my life accordingly. And the Old Testament is dripping with the gospel. And we get this, we understand this, and it begins to come alive. And sometimes it's really easy to spot in the Old Testament that it's actually all about Jesus. So we have things like direct prophecy, you know, all the Christmas stuff we'll hear in a few weeks. Isaiah uh, chapter nine, for to us a child is born and a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders and he should be called wonderful counselor. Ah, oh, it's Jesus. Read that bit, read that. Oh, next bit, I, I'm not sure. But this is really, because it's, sometimes it's harder to spot. This is really what we've been trying to do in this series trying to point out, see how this points to Jesus and how this bit points to Jesus and how this story points to Jesus. And so we see in this genealogy of Christ, we have all sorts of what we call types, types of Christ and all sorts of anti-types, those who are not like Christ. And so Boaz, we looked at a few weeks ago, he's a type of Christ. He's a kinsman redeemer who redeems, reclaims, gets the foreigner who's outside the family and brings them in. And we say, that's exactly what Jesus has done. We're all foreigners and he's brought us into the family. He's a type of Christ. Ah, and we're going to see in a moment a whole bunch of anti-types who are not Jesus. Why are they there then? We'll look in a moment. We've also seen what we call intertextuality, which is where there's like a character acts in such a way. It's like an echo, if you like, of what is to come, a foreshadow of what is to come, how Jesus works. So we saw that in Judah, Judah and Tamar, that really horrible, messy story. Judah ultimately substitutes himself for his younger brother, Benjamin. We go, I've seen this before. The older brother substitutes himself. Jesus substitutes himself. And now we're redeemed. And when you start reading like this and understanding this, you go... Wow, this thing, it really does come alive. And this is really important for us today as we start to look at the kings. Because the kings are a little bit confusing. And our tendency when we read the list of the kings is basically just to look at them and think, is that guy pronouncing that right? I ain't so sure that's how you say it. When really what we need to be doing is going, looking and thinking, how does this point to Jesus? How does this guy point to Jesus? He seems so terrible. How, how do we get to Jesus from him? And what's important to understand is that throughout the Old Testament, the people are looking for a king. They're looking for the perfect king, and they're constantly living. Here's the, is this the guy? Oh, no, it's not. And even with the really good ones we looked at over the last few weeks, David, is he the guy? He really is the guy. He's the... Ah, no, maybe he's not. And even Saul, oh, no. Oh, he's definitely not. Let's have a look at some of them. Now, these are the kings of Judah. Now, they're not to be confused with the kings of Israel. All right, just make sure you know that. There's different types of kings, kings of Judah and kings of Israel, and their stories are told in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. And basically, as you read through Kings, there's a bit of a formula. In the nth year of the king, or king X of Israel, King Y of Judah was a really bad man. That's basically how it goes. And it gets confusing until we understand what's going on. And we actually work it out here when we look at this genealogy of Christ. Verse 2, Matthew 1, Jacob, right? We start way back with him ages ago. Has his name changed by God to Israel? And he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, Jacob and sons. Da, 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 da. I, just, I know all the words, but I'm not going to sing it here. 
And there's basically constant warring between these tribes. They, don't, they fall out. They don't get along. And then David, verse 6, comes along and he unites the tribes. David's a type of Christ. What a king. What a guy. He brings the kingdom together. And then he hands over to Solomon, who's, well, he's pretty, okay, he's pretty good and does a few daft things. But he continues stability of the kingdom, united. And then verse 7, Rehoboam, bad. He's a privileged, spoiled little brat, really, who's out of touch with the people. 1 Kings 12, basically, he decides, I'm in charge, put up the taxes. And all the people go, no chance, mate, and revolt in a big way. And a guy called Jeroboam leads the revolt. And basically, what happens is the two kingdoms divide. What was a united kingdom is now split. And you've got the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes all go to the north, led by Jeroboam and Jehu, and all those guys come from them. That's, they're called the kings of Israel. Sometimes Ephraim, okay? And then you have the southern kingdom, the small one, which is called the, kings, the kingdom of Judah. And they have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And that all comes about because of Rehoboam. And so these then are the kings of Judah, not to be confused with the kings of Israel, all bad. Kings of Judah, mostly bad with a few exceptions. Verse 7, Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. He was another bad king. And then a few kings stand out. Asaph, he was the first decent one. He's also called Asa. We've heard him being referenced already this morning when Dave brought that contribution earlier. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, the eyes of the Lord wander to and throw throughout the earth. That was in reference to this king, Asaph or Asa. And he makes an attempt to end idolatry in the land. And he's a good king spiritually, but he ain't so good politically. And things go wrong again. And so then we have Jehoshaphat. He's one of the more decent kings. He does some good things. Although he ends up doing something stupid and getting scolded by God in 2 Chronicles 19. Because he makes an alliance with the evil king Ahab of the northern kingdom. God says, don't do that. And then we get to Joram. He's bad. And then the genealogy misses out some here. Now, we ain't got loads of time to go into this, and it's not hugely interesting, but for, for, it's a Jewish literary, advice, a literary device, okay, which basically takes kind of like poetry and all that kind of stuff and makes it easier to, to memorize for people. So they skip out of the few ones who are not that much fun and t- turn to Uzziah next, who's a good guy, and Jotham, who's a good guy. And after we have a run of good kings, we get to the reprehen- one of the first reprehensible ones, Ahaz. Now, his reign has unceasing scandal. I mean, like, he is really bad. He's the first king of Judah to sacrifice some of his children. All right? I mean, you don't need to, need to tell you that that ain't good. And he offers sacrifices to other gods, and he helps himself to the nation's finances as well. He's a real bad guy. He's a real anti-type. He is not like Christ. He is nothing like Christ. And you've got to remember, every story is all pointing to Jesus in every situation. And so we don't read this story of Ahaz and go, okay, he's a bad guy, so I've got to apply some principles to my life. Okay, lesson number one from Ahaz, don't sacrifice your children. That's a good thing to do. And now we can go, oh, well, of course we wouldn't kill him, but actually you can pull out all sorts of other things and go, well, I'll sacrifice him on the altar of work. Or I'll sacrifice him on the altar of chasing success. Or I'll sa- whatever it might be. But that's not fundamentally what this is about, nor is the second lesson that we learn from Ahaz, don't steal. I mean, that's a good principle, but it's not primarily what this is about. Or the third lesson, be generous. It's not primarily what this is about. If we read it morally, we turn it into what we need to do, but we read it and we see, no, this points to Jesus Christ. And so we see, look, this king here, he is a king who, Ahaz, a bad king, he sacrifices other people for his own motive, and we contrast him with the true king who sacrifices himself 
himself for his people. This is a king here who is so evil that he steals the money from his people, steals money from the land in order to make himself rich. The true king, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. We're going to see how this works itself out. It's not morally, oh yes, be generous. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not good things to do. Don't go away from here going, we don't need to do anything. Sacrifice. No. But it's their antitype is going, listen, look how bad he is, but look how good Jesus is, the true king. And then we get to the first type of Christ in this. Hezekiah, verse 9. He's among the best of kings. And it starts telling his story in, in 2 Kings, uh, verse 18, verse, chapter 18, verse 3. And it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places. He broke the pillars down. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 6, he held fast the Lord. He did not depart from following him. And verse 7, the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. You see, this guy, Hezekiah, is a type of Christ. He's very different from his father who was not a good guy. He is a good guy. He's a reformer who starts rebuilding things and and pulling down the idols so that people can find their way back to God, so that people can come and worship God, so that he made a way for the people to come and worship. He was also a warrior who took on the enemies of God and fought the battles against the Philistines and the Assyrians. And he was also a builder. We read elsewhere in his story that he built things for the people of God to prosper. So he built physical things. Things like reservoirs and tunnels so that water could come into the city so that the people could quench their thirst. He's a type of Christ. He's a reformer who's made a way for the people who come and worship before God. He's a warrior who fights battles on behalf of the people of God. And he is also a builder who builds things so that people can quench their thirst. What does Jesus do? Begin to re- Ah, it begins to come alive. And when we start to see this stuff, we think, wow. Jesus, you've done it truly perfectly. Because Hezekiah, whilst he's a good guy, read the rest of his story, he ends up getting sick, God heals him. And even after that, he still gets it wrong. And he ends up saying to the Babylonians, come and check out all my empire. And God wipes him out. He's not the one. And then the guy who comes next, verse 10, his son Manasseh. He's definitely not the one. We'll come back to him in a moment. And then we get to Amos or Amon, who is notoriously wicked. I mean, his officials, his own team, assassinated him after two years in the job. How bad do you have to be when your own guys kill you, not somebody else's after only two years? And then you get to Josiah, who's among the best. 2 Kings 22.2 says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. His life was cut short in battle. And then we miss out a few kings and we land with Jeconiah, whose evil is so great that his line is cursed. That's a story for another day. And then we end up in the Babylonian captivity. And the bit of history, if you like, biblical history moves on from the era of the kings to the Babylonian captivity and you get Daniel and, and all of that kind of stuff. This here is quite a list of, of people who find their way into Jesus' line. This is quite a list of of folk, and some of them are really not that good. And at a big level picture, they're all pointing to Jesus. The bad ones are saying, look, they are not the king you're looking for. They're not very good. You need a true king who can do all of these things and do it properly. And even the good ones, they're all pointing out, they're all flawed in the end. They all make mistakes in the end. Why? Because they're men. And it's pointing and saying, listen, even the best of men is nothing compared to the, the true king, Jesus. 
But each of these stories, as well as a big picture point of Jesus, each of these king's stories are also pictures of and stories of the gospel, even the most vilest of kings. So let's have a look at one. We'll spend these next few moments looking at the story of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh... Son of Hezekiah, who Hezekiah was a real good guy, and uh, Manasseh really isn't. And his story is told in two places, in the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And we pick up the story in 2 Kings uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Remember, he grew up in a godly home. His dad was a godly man. He grew up in a home that worshipped the Lord. But verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and, and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Everything Hezekiah has done, he undoes in order to start worshipping foreign gods. Jump to verse 6. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Carries on telling all the evil he does. Jump to verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin, they made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Wow. Flick over 2 Chronicles where we pick up the rest of his story. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. He's a bad guy. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they dead and they buried him in his house. 
and Amon, his son, reigned in his place. This is a filthy story. I mean, it is a shockingly bad story. He was raised in a godly home and rebelled like big time. You might say royally, but I'm not that cheesy. He practiced evil, like in a major way. He worships idols. He's a murderer and an executioner. The Jewish historian Josephus tells the story and tells the stories from a, from a non-biblical perspective, from a non-Christian, if you like, perspective of how much blood was shed. We just read that the blood ran through all of Jerusalem. Every single prophet who came and warned him, he had executed and murdered. The early church fathers, Justin Martyr and Tertullian, they recount that the prophet Isaiah, who had prophesied during his father's reign, Hezekiah's reign, he had him killed as well. Hebrews 13, 7 shows you how they were killed they were torn in two he's an evil dude and yet this is a gospel story sin in a major way get warned of the consequences ignore all the consequences ignore all the warnings the wickedness continues and so God acts as punishment for his wickedness, he gets captured by the Assyrians. They literally put a hook through his nose and they bound him in him and they drag him off into captivity away in chains. Here's the thing. God always, always, always deals with sin and wickedness in the end. Now we know because we read elsewhere that he's a God who is slow to anger and he's abounding in love and he's incredibly patient, not wanting any to, to perish. But make no mistake, God will not be mocked and in the end, he always deals with sin. And the first part of this story is like a, is a big caution. It's a big flashing warning sign. It's a big kind of, be careful. And it's a big thing of, watch yourself. Because whenever the people of God reject the ways of God, like Manasseh, don't forget, he sinned against the God he knew. So it's not, well, I didn't know any, any better. He was not ignorant in his unbelief. He knew and he sinned against him. And when they reject the warnings of God, verse 10 here, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Whenever that happens, the people of God will in some way, shape or form, in some sense, be bound with hooks, bound with fetters and brought to Babylon in captivity. You see, sin never produces freedom. It has the allure of freedom. Oh, wow, I, get to, I can do whatever I want. Look at this. This is so easy. It has the allure of freedom, but it only ever locks us up in more mess. It's always been this way. Right from the beginning, Eve in the garden, and the, the, and the enemy, he comes, and the devil comes, and he says, did God really say, would you not be more free if you did? And she's like, oh, maybe I would. And what happens? Captivity, mess. Sin never produces freedom. Captivity in Babylon here is seen as something catastrophic. It's something real and lasting. When, when the people would have first heard this and read this, it would have sent a shudder through them and they would have vowed, not me. This is not a small thing. The consequences are massive. But this is where the gospel kicks in. Because the second part of this story is a story of hope and it's a story of encouragement. In a moment of despair, in a moment of distress, when he realizes he cannot go any lower, when the weight of his sin dawns on him, not the, the sense of worldly grief, I've been caught out, I feel a little bit bad about that, I'm sorry. And the weight of the sin weighs on him that it is not before anyone else, but it is before God and God alone have I sinned. Wow, look what happens. Verse 12, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. 
And look what God does. I'm going to kick you when you're down. Forget it, too late. But no, no, no. He hears his prayer. And he restores him to his kingdom in Jerusalem. How does he act? He removes the idols of his heart. He removes all the stuff he's done. He turns 180. He's a changed man. And he says, I will once live like this. I'm distraught at how I've sinned before you, God. I'm turning this way. God hears him. And he says, now I'm going to live this way. This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. You see, whenever the people of God are moved with distress to humble themselves and turn back to God, verse 12 here, the Lord always forgives. The Lord always restores. And more importantly and more amazingly, he always blesses. You see, repentance, this is why repentance, real repentance, not worldly grief that is cheap and doesn't lead anywhere, but godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. This is why it is so very, very important because when we get to that place, what it results in, the next action, is God's outrageous, extravagant, scandalous blessing towards us. God gives Manasseh back his kingdom kingdom he does not deserve this God could have perfectly and justifiably gone okay Manasseh I hear you and I forgive you but your actions mean you are dying in Babylon in captivity forevermore sorry mate you're forgiven but that's it deal with it look at verse 13 that's not what God does at all God brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What? This is mad. This is outrageous, scandalous, amazing grace. Not just forgiveness, but restoration. Not just I'll cover over your mess, but I will reform you and I will bless you. Now listen, I don't hear what is not being said here. Not saying that there aren't consequences for our sin, even when we repent, because there are. Verse 17, the people still sacrificed in the high places. They were damaged by Manasseh's sin. His son Amon followed in his footsteps, not in righteousness and repentance, but in sin. And he was assassinated after two years on the throne. Manasseh's repentance did not restore the life of all those prophets or all the other people he'd killed. They were forever dead, and he would have to live with that every single day of his life. Why is this story here? When the first part of it is here because it's giving us this clear message that sin always leaves scars. This is part of the warning here. God warns us not to sin. He warns us about the significance of sin, not because he's a killjoy, but because it messes us up and it messes others up too. But the second part of this story is that the joy of repentance is that it leads to life. See, God, Manasseh enjoys God's undeserved favor after he repented. I mean, look at this. Look at this. A clue gives it the very first verse we read about him. 55 years this guy reigned. Longer than David. Longer than Solomon. Longer than Hezekiah. Longer than anyone. That, he's like got the longest reign of any king in Judah. Why would God allow this wicked king to occupy the throne for 55 years? Well, for the same reason he's put up with all the wickedness in this world to this point in history, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Manasseh gets forgiven, and he gets blessed. And when he slept with his fathers, when he died, in that moment, instead of facing the wrath of God, he's welcomed into God's presence. Wow. 
This offer is open to us too. That's the gospel message to every single one of us. Forgiveness and blessing and grace. This is the joy of repentance. This is what you get. And actually you get so much more. Back to Hezekiah for a moment. So if Manasseh is an antitype, and in many ways also a story of God's grace, Hezekiah is a type of Christ. See, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying at the time that Hezekiah is on the throne. And in Isaiah 32, remember when we read the Old Testament, it's about this, but it's also about this. And in Isaiah 32, he prophesies this. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who, who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Isaiah prophesies this about Hezekiah. He's telling us that there is, in his hour of need, Hezekiah will turn wholeheartedly to the Lord and will become the type of ruler that his nation so badly needed. But we also see at a completely different level that this is not just about Hezekiah. This is about the greater king who is to come. Hezekiah is a prophetic picture of his descendant who ultimately will rule with majesty and beauty and splendor and perfect peace and perfect righteousness. This is the true king who will reign in righteousness and will be a hiding place. He will be a shelter in the storms of life. He will be a stream of water in a dry place and whom our eyes will see. This is Jesus. You see, repentance leads to forgiveness, restoration, but it also leads to the incredible blessing that this true and perfect, this greater king, everything that he is, all that he is, all that he's done, it's all for you and the full weight of his glory and the full weight of his kingship and the full weight of his majesty comes to bear in your life right here, right now. Isaiah prophesied that Hezekiah would rule in righteousness. Jesus really does. He prophesied that he would provide safe spaces for his people Jesus really does he prophesied that he would end up building and rebuilding and so that his people could drink Jesus truly enables us to drink you see Hezekiah he was a builder he was a reformer and he was a warrior and Hezekiah is a picture of the one who is who was to come Jesus Christ who is a true reformer so Hezekiah made a way for the people to worship Jesus when he bled and died on that cross made a way for you and I to come into the presence of a holy God though we don't deserve it and though we could never earn it he stood in the gap and he made a way and Hezekiah was this builder who built reservoirs and tunnels so that the people could quench their thirst in a physical sense Jesus says from me streams of living water will flow and so as you turn to me as you feast on me as you drink from me you shall never thirst and Hezekiah was a warrior who went into battle for his people and there's this awesome story running out of time but 2 Kings chapter 19 the Assyrians are there with their massive army 185,000 of them Judah has like two less than 2,000 men There's no chance they're ever going to win. And Hezekiah calls upon the Lord, the God who is faithful. Hezekiah calls upon the Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt when Moses said, Fear not, stand firm, see salvation of the Lord, which will come to work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Hezekiah calls upon the Lord who does the same thing for Elisha in 2 Kings 6. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And the Lord hears Hezekiah and comes through for him. 
and an angel of the Lord comes and an army of 185,000 and those who are against us, whoa, massive, comes through and in one night, he wipes them all out. What's this story all about? Well, when it seems impossible, when there seems no way through, the Lord always delivers when we call upon his name. And these tremendous acts of deliverance in the Old Testament, they're all designed to publicly display the awesome power of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies in battle. And in just the same way as in these Old Testament battles, the Lord of hosts, the true king, the conquering Jesus Christ has come to slay the cosmic enemies of sin and death for his people and he won. And so now the greater king is roaring with power and fighting our battles. The lion of the tribe of Judah is for you and he has overcome. And so repentance leads to life and forgiveness and restoration and blessing and the full weight of the authority and the majesty and the power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is for you. This is the joy of repentance. This is the joy of repentance. Why would you not? (laughs) This is how God wants to bless you. There's no promise of riches. There's no promise of everything working out smoothly. There's the promise that the Lord is with you and for you fighting your battles. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, we read the Old Testament and we just, because we live in a world that's bombarded with all the time, I must be better. I must do better, but I'm useless. And most of the time our thinking is, this is really bad, I'm really bad, Jesus is really good, I've got to be better like Jesus. No, the message is, you're never going to be better like Jesus. Your life is hidden in Jesus and you already are. And God the Father now looks on you and he doesn't see the stinking mess of the way you make mistakes time and time and time and time again. He doesn't look on me who did stupid things yet again. A couple of weeks ago I said, I stood here and I went, I repent before my wife. I prayed, And everyone went, oh, that was so brave and so powerful. Do you know what? Since then I've done loads of stupid things towards my wife. And again and again and again, the forgiveness of the Lord comes and he looks on me. And he is delighted. And it's got nothing to do with me. It's because my life is hidden in the one who is perfect in all his ways. In whom he is well pleased. The grace giver who covers our sin, who forgives us, who restores us and blesses us.